We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, and we shall read just now from verse 11. Reading from verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell in the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. And may the Lord again bless to us this uh, short reading of his word. We return to our consideration of the book of the Revelation. And in this part of this chapter 13, we have the appearance in the visions of John of this second beast empowered by Satan, uh, completing this evil, diabolical trinity in opposition to the divine, eternal trinity in the Godhead. And uh, when we consider, we've already, of course, in the past, just in passing, made mention of the fact that he has quickening power and then can imitate and uh, counterfeit so much of the work of the Spirit of God. But here we have him Describe this beast that comes out of the earth. The first beast comes out of the sea. The second beast here comes out of the earth. It rises from among the people. And uh, he is described for us. And uh, his uh, work is also described, his power that he exercises in opposition to Christ and to his church. And then we have the particular ministry uh, that he engages in. Now it is worth remembering that the dragon is a spiritual creature or being and is no more visible than God himself. So we must keep that in mind. We're dealing with invisible powers that are exercised through uh, those who have, uh, to some degree, a visible presence amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And when we come to the verse 18, the second beast is referred to as having the number 
of a man. So he's identified as a man. He has a visible presence. Now we shall note when we come to that uh, something of the identity of this man. But you will note those important words at the beginning, that little sentence at the beginning of verse 18, here is wisdom. Here is wisdom. What here is John referring to? He's referring to the wisdom that is contained in the words of this 13th chapter. Here is wisdom for the church. Here is wisdom for God's people when they pay attention to what is written. It ought to afford them protection from the onslaughts uh, that uh, will certainly influence and impact the earth of uh, mankind. Now, one of the things, and we keep this in mind from the very beginning, when we began to look at the throne, the throne that was governing everything, and the Lamb in the midst of the throne, we must never forget that person and that Lamb in the midst of the throne because he appears at different points throughout this book. This is one of the great mistakes that many make when they come and attempt to expound or explain this book. There's always two things that they will be stressing and emphasizing, sometimes three, and that is the second coming of Christ, and usually bind up with it the secret rapture. And the other thing is the future and the fate of the Jews. Those are the two issues that again and again and again you will hear these prophetic speakers concentrating upon. This book is not about the Jews at all. It is about Christ. He is central to everything that's going on here, and the Lamb in the midst of the throne is seen to be in control of everything. As I said, this is a pastoral letter. It is to be sent to the seven churches in Asia. And thus, we would expect it would be read out. Someone would be responsible for reading it out uh, to the, in the congregations of the seven churches. And it is meant then to give them wisdom, to make them wise as to what is going on around them, to make them wise as how they should act or react to what is going on, how they should see the Lamb ruling and reigning in spite of everything that is happening. This warfare that we've already been considering We see this third personage, as it were, this third power coming now into focus. I beheld, verse 11, John says, another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now you will see Right away, there is absolutely nothing heavenly, whatever, about this trinity of evil. The dragon comes out of the abyss. The first beast comes out of the sea. And the second beast comes out of the earth. And they are very obviously 
creatures, dependent creatures, but exercising a power as though they are not. And what do we see here? This second beast, he had two horns, like a lamb. Note those words, like a lamb. And he speak as a dragon. His appearance is a deception. His appearance and his activities are a parody of the true lamb. When we come down to chapter 14, verse 1, John says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb, the real lamb, the true lamb, the lamb of which John the Baptist said, Behold the lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. But here we have this beast, and he is a beast, but he looks like a lamb, and he has two horns like a lamb. Outwardly he appears to be like the lamb, and he speaks as a dragon. You go back to chapter 5, and there you see in verse 6, what John records, I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven heads, or seven horns, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. There stood a lamb in the midst as though he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes. Now notice this beast when he appears. John describes him as having but two horns. So he is powerless in reality in contrast to the lamb that is seven horns. As we've said, the horns are a symbol of power to be exercised among men. But notice, he speak as a dragon. There is this contradiction. He looks like a lamb, but he sounds like a dragon. Very, very different. What does the gospel tell us? About the Savior, he was meek and lowly. He never speak as a dragon. In fact, when you go back to the prophecy of Isaiah, to the chapter 42, we have the prophet by inspiration describing the future Messiah. In verse 1 of Isaiah 42, we read, Behold my servant. Look at my servant. How do you recognize him? How would you know him? Whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. This is the one that, during his ministry, God testified, This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. And here he is here. And what is God saying? I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not feel nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait on him. Now this is God's description here of his own elect and chosen Messiah or Christos. Here John is writing to the churches that they might be made wise 
as to what they will be confronted with and what is taking place around them. Not only do they have to contend with enmity and hostility from without, but also dangers from within. And when these seven churches receive the epistle that John writes, it is to enlighten them and encourage them and make them wise as to the powers of darkness that are engaged against them. He speak as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast. So you can't make any distinction, as it were, between the power that's exercised by the first beast and the power that is exercised by the second beast. In the divine trinity, the Son points to the Father. The Holy Spirit points to the Son. That's how it is. The Father sends forth the Son. He is the express image of the Father's person. When the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son, what does Jesus say? He will not speak of himself. He will testify of me. He will call, he will enable you to remember all things whatsoever I have said unto you. Now here, in this evil trinity, the first beast has his power from the dragon. And he is worshipped as the dragon is worshipped, the devil. This second beast, he causes the first beast to be worshipped. But note how this evil trinity, the power that is exercised, is all the same. It's all of one source, but it is all directed and it is all exercised in one direction. And it is because of this trinity of evil, the hatred of that trinity to the man-child, to the church that bore him, and then to the remnant of her seed. The devil has, of course, suffered one defeat after another. And now this is what John tells us. The dragon, when he was cast into the earth, in verse 12 of chapter 12, We read, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you with great wrath. Why? Because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. He knoweth that he hath but a short time. He already knows. In himself and to himself, he has already conceded, I'm defeated. I am defeated. You will, some of you know a little of the history of the Second World War. You will, and anything of Hitler, you will know that even at an early stage, Some of his generals were against him. They even some tried, whether they were truly believers or not, but there were a couple of supposed Christian generals who could not possibly agree with what he was doing, and they sought to assassinate him, but they failed and ended up being executed. But as the war was progressing and the German generals could see, we are defeated. We cannot win. We're going to be beaten. And they advised Hitler, surrender. They were advising him, you must surrender. We're beaten. We can't win. But he wouldn't. Even though he knew, my time is short. 
I refuse to give in. I refuse to surrender. I know I'm beaten. I know the German people are going to be humiliated, but I'm not going to surrender. I am not going to give in. I'm going to fight on to the last. And that's what the spirit of the dragon is. I'm a defeated foe. I've been losing battle after battle, but I'm not going to give in. I am going to oppose the church of Christ to the very last. You see how he, first of all, sought to uh, prohibit the birth of the man-child. He's defeated. He seeks to devour the man-child as soon as he's born. He's defeated. The man-child is exalted and raised into heaven. But Satan has war in heaven until he's cast out. He's defeated every time. And he knows he is a defeated foe. But that's what makes him... Uh, more vicious and more devoted to oppose Christ and his church. He exerciseth all the power of the first beast. And it's as though, therefore, because he exercises the same power to the same extent, you've got this, uh, these twin channels, as it were, of power opposed to the church of Christ. He causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And we mentioned this a little, but I want to come back to it. The first lamb that appears in the chapter already mentioned, chapter 5, the lamb that was standing amidst the elders, a lamb as it had been slain. He bore the evidence of the fact he'd been slain. But he is alive in the midst of the elders and seated in the throne of glory. Now look at what this beast does here. He causeth the first beast, to be worshipped. He has the power to move the wills of men by propaganda, pressure, whatever. He moves men to worship the first beast. What is peculiar about this first beast? He's been wounded unto death. Or he appears to carry a wound. Uh, Verse 3 of chapter 13, I saw one of his heads, one of the seven heads, as it were, wounded to death. Very similar to the Christ of God. Now isn't it amazing? What's happening here? The first beast that has been wounded to death and is alive and survived it. What do we read? This second beast, he causeth. By this means and that means he causeth uh, all of the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Now, what was the great problem that the apostles faced going out into the world to preach the gospel to every creature? You go through the Acts of the Apostles, what did they come up against opposition for? Preaching the resurrection. Preaching the resurrection of the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. Men refused that. 
They objected to it. They would not believe it. They would not worship the Messiah who was dead as far as they were concerned and could not possibly be resurrected. They objected and they rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. Look at what happens here. Tells us something about the state of the human heart and human nature. He causes them to worship the first beast who, we're told, his deadly wound was healed. They marvel at the resurrection of this beast. They accept that he has resurrected. You see what's in the human heart. Man will believe anything in opposition to God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. And it doesn't matter what the reason is, what the excuse is, man by nature is opposed to God. He will reject the truth of God and he believe the lie even when it appears impossible. Now, He doeth, verse 13, great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven and the earth in the sight of men. Now it is a well-known fact throughout the history of the nations that amongst all the various false religions, they would have their priesthood, and amongst the priesthood, or at least attached to it, they would have Uh, They're magicians, they would have their sorcerers, and they would make a contribution, supposedly, to revealing the future to kings before they would go out to war, before they would make a political decision, and so on. He doeth great wonders. He maketh fire come down from heaven. What power is it that is producing this? It is satanic power. And this satanic power is able again and again to actually imitate the divine power of God. Just you remember when Moses went down into Egypt to stand before Pharaoh And Pharaoh wanted some evidence. How do I know that this God that you see has sent you? What did God tell Moses to do? Throw down the staff in your hand on the ground, became a serpent. Now that was divine power. Moses had no power in himself to do it. That was a manifestation of divine power. But then what did, Her- what did Pharaoh do? Well, he called in his own mag- magicians, his own uh, sorcerers and magicians. Now, can you match this? Of course they did. Now, what power did they possess? It was not the power of God. It was satanic power. Now, of course, as time went on, it became very obvious While there's no limit to the divine power of God, there is a limit to the powers of darkness. And the magicians come to the point where they feel and they could not enact at all what Moses under God had been able to do. But here uh, there are these great wonders. When Jesus, the Son of God, came, He did wonders. He performed miracles. He calmed the waves. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He gave all kinds of cures because he was divine. Still they crucified him. They rejected him. But here is this beast 
And it is not so. He is very acceptable. He doeth great wonders. And on whose behalf is he doing them? He's doing these wonders to convince men that they ought to worship the beast that has the, that is evidence of being slain and is alive again. Now I know we could expand in different directions when we come to matters like this. But these wonders, the purpose in them was to convince, to convince men of the power behind the actions. And they were in order to deceive them that dwell in the earth. Not to convince them with truth, but to deceive them with falsehood and error. Now you take a, uh, you might think, well, where are the miracles? Where are the great wonders? Where are the wonderful works that we have to confront us? Uh, we are confronted with an day. Well, you just think of it. Some wise professor. He's got a string of letters after his name and is attached to some great uh, institution. What does he do? He goes out to the desert and he digs up a piece of a bone a few inches long. He takes it home in his pocket or in a box and he takes it into a, into a scientific establishment, into his laboratory And he begins to look at it through his microscope and he measures it and he looks at it and he studies it. And lo and behold, he's able to produce a dinosaur out of it. Well, that's quite a wonder, isn't it? From a piece of bone that looks any shape, but he's able to produce a dinosaur out of it. And the little children start reading, my, what a clever man. This is one of the great wonders of the deception of our day and our generation. This satanic power that is behind the deception to cause men to turn from God, from giving their worship to God, to giving their worship to the beast. Now, notice... What else he does? He deceiveth them that dwell in the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell in the earth that they should make an image to the beast. What does God's commandment say? God's law, God's commandments forbids this. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down to them, thou shalt not serve them, and so on. Here is this opposition going in defiance of God going in the very opposite direction. And he is telling them, and he is enforcing the laws of the kingdom of darkness. Whatever God says, we do the opposite. Whatever God's law is, our laws are different. Now you can see here, Exactly the kind of a society that John is writing about to the churches in Asia. Here is wisdom. Take note of it. In this Psalm 107, you have, uh, after all, the description of the dealings, the providential, merciful dealings of God with men, As the psalm concludes, here's what the psalmist writes, verse 43. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, 
even they shall understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Whoso is wise, I will observe these things. And here's the words to the seven churches. If you people in Ephesus or in Pergamos or whatever, if you will be wise, you will give heed to what is written here. You will give heed to what the devil's purpose is, what the powers of darkness are engaged in doing, the kind of opposition, subtle, dangerous, deceitful opposition to God, redirecting the worship of men away from God to the beast that has the wound. Make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and it lived. They deny the resurrection of Christ and they exalt the resurrection of this satanic beast. But we're told, verse 15, he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Here is real opposition. Remember where the power is sourced, the dragon, the devil, Satan. He goeth about as a roaring lion who seeking whom he may devour. He was a murderer, as we said in the past, from the beginning. A murderer. From the beginning, it has been his work and his activity to murder the unborn child in the womb, to murder through war, through famine, through bloodshed, and so on. All the brutality that is bound up with ISIS, these various branches of Islam, and popery in the past, and persecution of the Waldenses and and the Scots Covenanters and the Puritans in England and the Swiss and the Italians in the past, uh, so on. All this has its origin in the kingdom of darkness. Now, this opposition is because, as we said, Satan knows his time is short. Therefore, I must do as much damage as I can possibly do before the end comes. Now you think of it. What's he up against? What did Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church. Now, we tend to think, you see, when we look at that portion, what Jesus is saying is this, I will build my church. And I will continue to build it, and it will continue to expand, and it will progress, and the powers of darkness won't be able to stop it. But you see, Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of hell, the place, the gates, of course, as I've said before, was the place where judgment was made. The elders of the city would sit at the gate. Issues would be brought before them. They would discuss the issues. You go to the book of Ruth. And you have their bows and the elders sitting down and they make a decision regarding the property that be, uh, belonged to Ruth in reality through Naomi. By it, the, the uh, kinsman redeemer who had a legal right to it, did not want to buy it. So Boaz purchases it, procures it, and the elders agree to it. Now, when Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, we can understand the seven heads 
of the dragon and the seven heads of the beast and so on. They are going to be working over time. How do we do as much damage to Christ's cause as we can? How do we damage the witness of Christ? How do we hinder the gospel? How do we inhibit the progress of Christ's kingdom? Now you can imagine when these when this letter would come to the seven churches, they were feeling very small. They were feeling in the great Roman Empire very small and insignificant, very feeble. And yet it is amazing. Remember the state of the seven churches. None of them were perfect. Some were better than others in a better spiritual condition than others. But they were still the seven churches and Christ was walking in the midst of them in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. They represent the general state of the universal church. Now in our day, the church is in, the universal church is in a low state, generally speaking. But it is something that we should not forget. I thought there was a confession here somewhere, a confession of faith. In the chapter 25, it uh, speaks of what, and remember, we believe this as free Presbyterians, the chapter on the church. The church invisible, or the church visible, rather, unto this Catholic visible church Christ hath given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world, and doth by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual thereunto. This Catholic Church hath been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. Persecution, you take in China, the church was, the visible church was virtually invisible to a large extent. You take the days of Elijah. The prophet, he was saying, I only am left, and they seek my life to destroy it. What did God say? Elijah, you're wrong. There are 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, Elijah may have wondered, where are they? But God knew they were there. He knoweth them that are his. And this Catholic church is sometimes more, sometimes less visible, and particular churches which are members thereof are more or less pure according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven, the purest churches, don't we think, well, we're reasonably pure. We believe in the regulative principle and our worship and our worship is regulated by the word of God. We're not contaminated by so much that goes on in other churches that this country to the word of God. But our confession says the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. The purest. Some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall be always a church on earth to worship God according to his will. And it is to be remembered 
that no more is the condition of the universal church different to what it was in John's day, the seven churches. Some were in a better condition than others. They were still the church. And you think of how small. What did Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven is like unto a mustard seed, which a man took. And it's the smallest of all seeds. And when he plants it, it grows, and it becomes a great mass of refuge for the birds of the air and a shelter for the beasts. But it begins as a tiny little mustard seed. And Christ is saying, what I have commenced here in this gospel ministry is very small, but it's going to grow. When you look today, you take a map of the world, all the countries, everywhere, and see how far Christianity and the gospel has succeeded all over the world. Now, I'm not saying that the church universal is pure. We know it's not. There's error in doctrine and teaching, error in practice, but nevertheless, the church that claims to be following Christ or established by Christ and his apostles is spread everywhere right across the globe. Now this is the Lord's doing. And it would be most discrediting and dishonoring to Christ if we were to deny it. Even in the state we're in, with all the confusion and all the error and all the unbiblical practices, the church is there. Now, here in this 13th chapter, we have this trinity, this evil trinity. What's it opposed to? Christ and his church. We read that chapter in 1 Thessalonians, if we may quickly turn to it, for a good reason. Paul is one of the apostles being part of the foundation of the church established upon the doctrine of the apostles and prophets. Now here is Paul, with the heart that he had for the cause of Christ and the gospel. In the opening part of this chapter, he speaks of his boldness to speak the gospel of God to the Thessalonians. Then he says, verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, we have been entrusted, Paul says, with a glorious gospel. And that's all Paul lived for. That's all concerned him. I am not ashamed, he says, of this gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. And Paul was entrusted with it, and he sought here to bring it to the Thessalonians. And obviously when he did, it bore fruit. Now he wants these believers to make spiritual progress. So he says in verse 17, we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. Physically, I cannot be present, but my heart is with you. You're in my heart. You're in my affections. My desire is, having been entrusted with the gospel, that you would know its blessings. And he says, we endeavored the more abundantly. We worked even harder. We made even greater effort 
Because you were in our heart. It was our, it, it was my heart that was drawing me. It was my heart that was moving me and calling me to come to you. But this is what he tells us. We endeavored more abundantly. We, we worked at it. We tried everything to see your face with great desire. As far as human effort was concerned, Paul couldn't do any more. But this is what he says. Wherefore, verse 18, we would have come unto you. Our hearts would have drawn us. Our efforts would have opened up a way. But Satan hindered us. But Satan hindered us. What is the work of Satan to hinder the gospel? His time he knows is I'm defeated. I cannot defeat the gospel. I cannot stop the gospel. I cannot prevent the advancement of Christ's kingdom. What am I going to do? I am going to hinder. I am going to work to hinder the preaching of the gospel. And I am going to Keep Paul from preaching the gospel in Thessalonica. I wonder, I wonder how many people that sit under the preaching of the word on the Lord's day have any idea that on the Lord's day, the devil is busy. Extremely busy. What's he wanting to do? Hinder. Hinder the preachers of the gospel. He will do anything to hinder them. You imagine... Some poor man at the end of this day. They'll go home with weary hearts. They'll go home thinking I've toiled and I put my heart and soul into it. And what's the result? Hindering. I remember years ago. I often think of it. A young minister. Of course, lacking, like any young minister, experience. And I remember him being reduced to tears. He had in his congregation a female politician. And it so happened her husband was a leading office bearer in the congregation. And she imagined because of her office, she was bigger, she was more important than the mean little minister. And she caused havoc. The poor man in the end was so broken, he resigned and he gave up. He couldn't take any more. If there's one thing the devil wants to do is silence the preachers of the everlasting gospel. And he will hinder them. Pray you will never be a hindrance to those sent to preach God's word. Satan hindered us. You imagine if we could just eavesdrop into the kingdom of darkness and Satan sending out his agents Go to Grafton, go to Sydney, go to Auckland, hinder them. Do whatever you can to hinder them. 
That's why the people of God need to pray, Lord, give thy servants Holy Ghost liberty to proclaim thy truth. And that's what we have here in Revelation 13, the opposition of this evil trinity to Christ and his cause. And look at what we see. The beast looks like a lamb so that he is taken to be a lamb. He is the counterfeit of the real lamb. When we come, as I said, to chapter 14, lo, a lamb, not the counterfeit, but the real lamb who is going to defeat the counterfeit, who is going to overthrow and break and destroy the power of that which is false. He causeth all rich and great, rich and poor, free and bond to receive a mark in their right hand and in their forehead. He identifies them as his own. Very often Roman soldiers, they would get a Mark, kind of a tattoo in their hand, and that was evidence that they belonged and that they were devoted to a certain general that they fought under. You have all the various forms of identification during Hitler's reign in Germany. All his followers wore a band on their arm. You see these gangs today, these bikies and so on, they'll have tattoos on their body to identify with a certain leader who in reality owns them. And they're declaring, I'm the property, I'm in the service of so-and-so. Here's what the beast demands and requires. Identification or no success, identification, or you starve, identification with the powers of darkness. Christ's people are known with the marks that we've already noted. They were marked, secured, as belonging to Christ. Here is this beast with power that he executes, he enforces the laws of the kingdom of darkness. And men are devoted to that kingdom to work in opposition to Christ and his cause. They can't defeat it, but we'll try to hinder it all we can. You pray today. For all God's poor servants seeking to preach his word because they often know. They enter the pulpit and they're aware. They can sense it. Satan is out to hinder. And the people of God need to be aware of it. Here is wisdom. Here is wisdom. How can we withstand powers of darkness, unless we understand them, the extent of them, the nature of them, and the purpose in them. Here is wisdom. And then there is a number given, the number of the beast, and it is the number of a man, but we have not time to go into that today. But here is wisdom. Here is wisdom. And we are left then, if we will lay to heart what is written, we are left without excuse if we go with the trends of our day in opposition to Christ and in opposition to the gospel. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we bless thee 
for the wisdom that we have in thy word, the wise counsel that we have from the one in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Gracious God, in this day, when the powers of darkness are so openly opposed to Christ and to his kingdom, enable us to be fervent in the place of prayer, praying for the overthrow of the powers of darkness, for the deliverance of poor souls from his grasp, from his kingdom, to be brought from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of thy dear Son. Bless thy word, receive us, pardon us now for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.